There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Monday morning, the 1st of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you may have heard on Friday's programme, uh, the ongoing criminal feud dominated last week's meeting of uh, the Joint Oireachtas Justice Committee. The Guard Commissioner and Deputy Commissioner took questions from TDs following uh, the latest gangland shooting and how children out playing in a housing estate ran for cover as gangsters fired a volley of shots and uh, man sit- at a man sitting in a, a parked car. Drew Harris told committee members he's very concerned by the level of violence. The commissioner was told people living in the town are very concerned by the level of violence. So they're anxious and they are afraid. TDs asked if Gardaí had sufficient resources or if the policing tactics were effective. We'll talk about this now with Peter Fitzpatrick, who's an independent TD for Louth and a member of that committee and was putting questions to the Commissioner. Fergus O'Dowd is a Fine Gael TD for Loud and he's on the phone with us this morning. Good morning to both of you and thanks for joining us. Uh, the Commissioner, uh, I think, uh, seemed at least uh, to be taking this very seriously, Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, Michael, as a member of the Justice uh, Committee, I was delighted to get the opportunity to talk to the Garda Commissioner and, and get an update on the situation, what's happening in Jordan. The people in Jordan are terrified uh, children of faded play in the streets, and in fairness, I found the, the Garda Commissioner like a better, better fresh air. Uh, he's given a commitment that going forward, that uh, that he is going to sort the problem out in Jordan. Uh, uh, we explained the decision since since uh, July uh, 2018. The amount of shootings and bombings that have gone in Jordan mm. is an absolute disgrace. We talk about the. Uh, by the flood there last year, and what a, what a fantastic presentation by the people of Jordan, the local authorities, everybody involved with the flood was absolutely fantastic. And in the, in the last months, like Jordan's uh, name and the headlines is, is there for the wrong reasons. And in fairness, like uh, I did ask him uh, what was going to happen uh, over, over since he came in as Garda Commissioner in, in, in October 2018. I feel as though he's done a fantastic job. Uh, we've asked him to increase the Garda force in Jordan, which he's done by 25. He's put the response units. He's, he's, he's doing everything he can. He's, he's reintroduced the, the community mm. guards there at the moment. Is and uh, like like and the, the thing I did like about him was uh, he's put his hands up and he said he needs help. Mm. He needs help from other other agencies. Like if you look at the, the, the main the, the main problems in Jordan and every other towns and cities in the country there, it's these gangs and the drugs and. Uh, uh, the, 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 
this no, this is he said it as he said himself was he does need help. And I think and, and in fairness, I did ask if this going on a long time is like the amount of garda that we have doing administration at the moment is is, is it, it's wrong. And he's given a commitment that over the last since October, I think roughly about three hundred of the guards has been taken off administration, been put on the front line. Mm. What people do in Jordan and surrounding areas, they want to see a presence of guard in the area. And it said, yeah, the community guard is Well, they're seeing it in Drogheda at the moment. Uh, I think uh, the place is swarmed with cops, as they say, very heavy policing presence in the town and many armed guard units uh, patrolling Drogheda for that matter. Having said that, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, a man shot in broad daylight with children playing uh, very close to where this happened in Terminapi. Uh, women in the estate saying uh, they're afraid to let their children out now to play. Yes, and that was an appalling attack. And I understand from the Garda Chief Superintendent that the Garda were um, in that location. Two minutes and 20 seconds was the response time to that uh, very serious uh, attack. Mm. And uh, obviously, the Garda can't be everywhere. And that's the problem. You can't have a card at every street corner. But you can make sure that they watch those who are most likely to be involved. But there is a and question as to whether that's good enough, isn't it? Isn't there? I, I well, mean, well, uh, I, I'm not a professional guard, but uh, what I can say is that the guardy have said to me that they have all the resources that they need. Uh, now, I wasn't at the meeting that Peter is talking about there, so I don't actually know. What the other issues are, I was on Brexit. Well, we, 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 sure, we, we we did hear a, a, a lot of uh, what was said at, at that meeting yeah. on, on Friday's program, <clears throat> and, and Melda Munster was asking uh, the commissioner uh, if uh, some individuals uh, should be shadowed twenty four seven, if uh, yeah. they should be yeah. following people all of the time, and she was contending that if that was a, a tactic ta- that was a, a, adopted by the Gardaí, then this shooting would have been prevented, and the children would have been protected. Yeah. Yeah, and the problem then is, you see, if I'm being followed, say, by you as a guard or whatever, then I'll get somebody else to go after somebody else. You see, it's it's, it's a vicious circle. If you are intent or two criminal gangs are intent on attacking each other, often they may use proxies to do their, to do their work. And uh, so I want to repeat that... Uh, the Gardaí have said but to me a, uh, that the... It's a tactic that's been used uh, elsewhere after the Gilligan gang in Limerick and so course, on. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course, yeah. Of course. Listen... And it was uh, effective I, in the past. The people, the people who decide uh, what the Gardaí should do are the Gardaí, and I'm mm. happy to support them. And my point that I've made repeatedly and have reassurances from the Minister for Justice that, that, that all the resources that the Gardaí need to fight this crime, evil crime... Mm. Uh, in Drogheda, they will get. So, uh, you know, I'd be happy to support anything that they want. I'm mm-hmm. not a professional policeman, as I said, but I do support increased uh, activity by the Garda mm-hmm. in relation to this. I, I, I'm not a professional policeman, but I, I'm sure, like you, I, I'm hearing from people who are telling me they're afraid and they're concerned uh, about how this is being handled. And, 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 and I'm cons- concerned, and, sure, Michael. And, and people are concerned. I'm looking beside somebody... Uh, who's involved in that situation is even worse because you're terrified that they may hit your house uh, as opposed to the house that they're after uh, mm. illegally and criminally. Mm. 
so and that's I, exactly I what happened right. last Thursday yeah. night after that shooting. Uh, uh, people were concerned uh, that uh, the uh, fires went off in Moneymore some three hours after that shooting uh, uh, and were saying to themselves uh, or asking if the Gardaí shouldn't have expected a retaliation in Moneymore. Well, that's a question. That's a question certainly that the Gardaí and Coyture will answer for you. Uh, but as I said to you, my job is to make sure that they have the resources they ask for. I'm as worried and concerned about the situation as everybody else is. Uh, and I'm happy to say that I, I'm happy to work with any of my colleagues and all of them to make sure that they're, you know, that the Guardi get the resources uh, that they want and that the public can maybe feel as safe as they should be. Okay, Peter Fitzpatrick, another question that a, a lot of people are asking is about the 25 Gardaí who have uh, been deployed to Drogheda because uh, they have uh, just graduated and uh, have to be accompanied when they're on patrol. And people are asking why were experienced Gardaí not sent to Drogheda, given the level of crime? Michael, first of all, is uh, I do agree there's not enough Gardaí in Drogheda. Uh, uh, if you look at Jordan at the moment, is Jordan is 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 now the, the sixth largest urban centre in, in in the country. It's it's got roughly the same population as Waterford. If you take if you take in the example the Jordan area and you take in the Bellies Town, Lay Town, and Mornington mm. at the moment, you're talking roughly about a population of fifty three thousand, the same as the Waterford area. Mm. And if you look at Waterford, Waterford is over two hundred Gardaí. But a lot of Gardaí yeah. time has been taken up apparently training these graduates in. Yeah, but I'm trying to say it's like. Uh, I do trust the Garda Commissioner. Uh, as I said, he came in last October. I've asked him a lot of hard questions. Mm. Uh, he's given a commitment that he will look after Jordan. Like, I spoke to the people there recently in Money More, mm. and uh, they, that's an estate that's developed for the last 25 years. They've no community centre. They've no youth system going on there at the moment. It's, they, they need a lot of help. And like as I said, yeah, the community guard mm. now. I think, as far as I'm concerned, is the community guard is going to play a major part in the likes of Drogheda going forward. Well, and right it, now, what the community guard and the other uh, uh, experienced guardee in Drogheda Station are, are doing is training in the graduates, uh, and people are asking if this was uh, a face-saving exercise or, or, or some sort of uh, ploy uh, to make it look as though the. Uh, threat to people in the town is being tackled by giving 25 extra new Gardaí but realistically speaking they've given them a group of trainees Well we, we know roughly about 350 recruits Gardaí come out of 10 hmm. or more this year and Jordan got 25 of them there right? I do agree with you but what but, but I'm trying to say is uh, the, 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 Garda, the Garda Commissioner who is totally responsible for the Garda it's him that makes the decisions I, 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 over the last number of years and on the Justice Committee I've asked uh, Minister Charlie Flanagan about getting more Gardaí than yet and he has told me from day one is hmm. that it's not his responsibility to deploy so now we were, were targeting the, the, the commander of the Garda, the Garda. We, we stated what happened he knows fully what happened he, his and him and his assistants last weddings in the door has given a commitment mm. that they will sort Jordan out they know the flat 2019 is coming up at the moment they know that the children mm. in the streets are fit to play at the moment they do know the problems so listen the pressure is put on the Garda Commissioner and as I said yeah, there's a new there's a new police and future plan out at the moment is, and as he said is the, mo- the main thing is to look after people in the area with local needs I'm disappointed, but at the same time too, Michael, is I'm delighted to see more Garda coming, and it has to be more Garda, more experienced Garda. We have the response uh, 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 Garda here in, in the town at the moment, is, and it's not nice walking through a town like Jordan there at the moment. Is, and, 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 and it's just not mm. nice. It's not, but as I said here, yeah, back in 2018, when the flower was, was in Jordan, mm. like, 
the whole the whole doll like I'm talking to people, TDs from Kerry all Donny on they couldn't get over how well and how good Drawder was and the people that Drawder has put Drawder on the map but as I said at the moment they're on the map for the wrong reason and we are asking the guard of the commissioner for all the help he can to give the people in Drawder an opportunity to mm. grow up in peaceful and in a lovely community area but this guard of commissioner has changed a lot of things like I've asked him a lot of questions and I'll be honest with you I found him up front and straight to the point and no mess whatsoever. And as I said to you from day one, I've been pushing for the last number of years mm. to get the guard on the front line. Too many administrators. Now, we, we have we have civilians that's actually been employed by the guard coming in with very, very experienced computer skills and everything else at the moment. Mm. And I think the guard is going to get stronger and stronger. And they can be back at base and the guardy can be out on the, more, the beach the, tackling the, the criminals. The, yeah. the more mm. experienced guard. Mm. We need experienced guard in Jordan. And, and, and Drew, Gow- Drew, mm. Drew Howard knows that we need them in the moment. His team knows we need them moment and the people in Drawda needs these people in Drawda. Fergus, out of doubt, are, are people right to be concerned that inexperienced graduates have been deployed to Drogheda? Well, first of all, anybody that wears a guard badge is qualified to do that and the training that goes on... But they have to be accompanied. Sorry, can, I, can I answer your question, please? Mm. If you ask me a question, I'd like to answer it. Uh, they, they, are, they are trained and they're professional. Uh, that very question was asked in the presence of the chief superintendent, and he said his own daughter is 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 a new recruited guardie working somewhere else in the country, and that she's as committed, as dedicated, professional as anybody else. And obviously, it is part of their of their training that they do go out in the street. And uh, I agree absolutely that they do need to be obviously managed because they are new in the job. But that doesn't mean they can't do the job. That doesn't mean that they can't get to know the people involved. That does, you know, there's very little that they can't do that I'm aware of. So I would, I, I would welcome all of these guardians. I don't make little of them because they've just qualified. You know, these are very dedicated. These are the cream of the crop, as far as I'm concerned, mm. of young people in Ireland who want to work in the guardie. That is their career. That is their commitment, mm. and I'm delighted to see them. And I would never. Sure, they ever, need six weeks training, uh, I though. Never, don't I they? would never. I would never make little of them. I know. I'm not. I'm not making. I make them. I'm sorry, Michael. I want to make this point. I've heard you, and I've heard. I've heard Peter. I'm delighted that they're here. Yeah. And okay. the, the key point I want to make is that every single question I put to the minister on issues like this, about operational matters of the guardie, mm. are clearly absolutely and solely matter for the Garda Commissioner. And the person you need to ask those questions to is the Garda Commissioner. And I would suggest that you ring and arrange through his office that he would come on the radio and answer those questions because I'm not qualified to answer them other than to say that every single guard and every single part of Draha to have my 100% support and I back them uh, you know, absolutely and totally. And I really think I really think that uh, you know they're more than welcome here. Okay. They're doing a fantastic job, and it's it's hugely important that they get that experience yeah. as well. Okay, I'm sure everybody would agree with that and support them and back them uh, and wish yeah. them well, and that they're successful well, you know, in tackling yeah. crime. 
I'm not going to criticise them. I'm and I don't think them. anybody would criticise them, but people... Yeah, well, I praise uh, them, Michael, because they, I, I think we... I'm delighted to have them. Yeah, well, I, I haven't heard anybody criticise them. I have heard people mm. who are concerned that they're inexperienced, that uh, they have to be accompanied by uh, a member of the Gardaí and that they have to get six weeks training uh, on arriving in Drogheda into the middle of a, a very serious criminal Yeah, but feud. they're trained in the law, they're trained in, in how to deal with people, they know what the law is they, they, the powers of full enforcement but you know, that, but, but you know I'm expressing the concerns Pardon? that people have uh, been uh, well, Michael, I'm a, but you should also be expressing the support and I'm glad that well, you we are. are we are, yeah, well, yes, good. I, I want to hear more of that Michael because you know I think these men and women well, we they do, and they're putting their lives They're fantastic, well. but but Drogheda is a very dangerous place to be in at the moment, uh, uh, and uh, not it's one. A very small number of very dangerous people, you know, and uh, and obviously clearly the person in the front line is that guard in the uniform, mm. and their lives they 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 they, they, they have huge risks as well, mm. you know, and I respect them for for working for us. Wouldn't you say it's very possible that uh, a, a gun will be fired in a public area today or sometime over the next few weeks? You're asking me that question, Michael. Yes. But we've had guns fired in our streets, yes. obviously. Well, that makes it a very dangerous place, doesn't it? That's why, that's why we have armed guardy patrolling uh, in our cars and as, as, as a backup to the, to the unarmed guardy. There's no doubt about that. You've had a number of people have been arrested, a number of people are before the courts, and uh, in the due process of law, and I, you know, you had the, that is the process that that we're in, and then the the, the cases go forward. But uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm happy that the Garda Commissioner is the accountable person. Mm-hmm. I've met him, I've met him in Drogheda in the Garda station. I've met the Minister for Justice in the Drogheda Garda mm-hmm. station. Uh, and they're fully aware and alert, Michael, to all of the worries and the real and, uh, you know, the, the real. And I articulate those worries publicly and privately as well. OK. Uh, Fine Gael has always been known as uh, the party of law and order. Do you think uh, Fine Gael has uh, lived up uh, to that reputation, Peter Fitzpatrick, well, in terms of dealing with this? Uh, because uh, it, it's been going on for a year uh, and uh, these guards have only been put in place in Drogheda now. Mike, you, you talked there a minute ago about the inexperience mm. of these recruits. Uh, since since the since the Garda Commission came in in October, the, over five hundred promotions have taken place between sergeants and inspectors. What this what this actually means is that guarders who's performing well in the ground are getting promoted to sergeants, and vice mm. versa with, with, with sergeants <coughs> and inspectors. The, the 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 good thing at the moment is that the Garda Commissioner has given total control to the superintendents, the chief superintendents mm. in their areas. To you know, to, you know, to do what they think is the best for their areas, and whatever they need and any kind of backup and support, he's given it. Mm. The thing, uh, thing I did notice too was, uh, uh, as I said, yeah, the Garda Commissioner is, is totally responsible for for the enforcement. Now, I would like to see Minister Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Justice, give more tools and equipment to. I I feel as though that these guards are going on the beat and and, and patrolling the cards. As far as I'm concerned, mm. they haven't got the proper equipment. And 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 Julian Harvest now is talking about this case. Excuse me, let me finish off. Uh, this guard commissioner is looking for a new uniform to to put on the guards. Like mm. if you look at now in Loud over the last number of years. The webcams. So yeah, yeah, we have we have two guards that mm. were shot 
in, a motored in mm. County Loud at the moment is. I've talked to a lot of, of men and well, women. It's not that long ago since we heard that the guards had stab vests rather yeah. than bulletproof vests. Yeah. Yeah. But, but mm. I'm to say, like, the, 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 the Garda Commissioner has stated there last Wednesday that, he, that that's what he's looking for, for mm. equipment, as I said, the, the mm. cameras and everything else. Guards do need protection. And as I said, he is, uh, we, we've got a lot of experience at the moment is. And like, uh, uh, the superintendent, uh, superintendent uh, Christy Mayan, is doing a fantastic job. Okay, let Fergus O'Dell yeah. come back there because, yeah. uh, I, I mean, you're saying saying uh, that the party of law and order, Fine Gael, are in a position now where the chief police officer in the country, the Garda Commissioner, is pleading for help and resources, Fergus O'Dowd. Well, I wasn't at the meeting uh, and clearly I'd be very happy to support any issues that arise from that meeting. And I, I actually don't know what Peter was talking about, what Gardaí don't have uh, in Drogheda. And I think, I think Peter... I think well, bulletproof vests. Well, I don't know that they have or they don't have. I presume uh, that that would be a matter. Again, Michael, the trouble with this debate here this morning is that we're not professional police people and they can answer those specific questions about uh, about equipment and so on. But, but what I can say is that this is a problem not just in Drogheda in terms of criminality and shootings. There was a man shot in broad daylight there and in Mulhullard, um, I think over the weekend, mm-hmm. people uh, a man has been murdered while he was bringing his two-year-old child on a, a, a young little baby in a pram near near a school. Or people have been shot near schools, and there is a very serious crime wave in our country in relation to drugs. And part of the reason is that as there is more money in the economy, more people are buying more drugs, and people are making more money from it. And these are what they call tough wars between different gangs. So it's a problem for the whole country. And I, I agree absolutely that everybody needs to do more about it. Um, so I don't think that... Okay. Um, I, I don't think I, I don't think that, that anybody. Okay, l- l- let's hear what the guard commissioner uh, did say about resources. Peter Fitzpatrick, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, but, but, but the guard commissioner spoke last Wednesday and he spoke very mm. positive. As I said, here, his, front, his, his mm. most important thing was was to get the guard more guard on front line, mm. and he also talked about it, looking after the local needs. Now, what he did say was he says that uh, it's very very important that tools and supports, including a new operation uniform and mobile technology, to be kept to keep the public and members safe. He does realise that his, his his members do need the proper equipment to, to man the lines. Like, I'm not trying to be smart at the moment. If you're walking down the streets of Jordan and the there at night time, you do need to have the proper equipment because nobody mm. knows what's going to happen. Or if you're like, walking down the streets well, of, you know of Drogheda in the middle of the afternoon, you yeah. might get shot. Yeah, but I, I think it's an awful shame. It's an awful shame at the moment is that the children that the children in Jordan are afraid to play in the streets. When like, like these these drug gangs have mm. no respect for nobody. They've no okay. respect for the guards. They've no respect for the people of Jordan. They've especially no respect for children. Okay. And they, these are children that's name maimed for for the rest of their life. Imagine, you imagine that your children or grandchildren to afraid of when like, yeah. it, it's totally nutly wrong. Yeah. All I'm trying to say is Fine Gael and in fairness, Minister Flanning. I've I've, I've got confidence in Flanagan. Please give the resources to our guardies to protect the people in Jordan, protect <coughs> the people in Loud. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm way over time. Final response, yeah. Fergus O'Dowd. Yeah, well, I think the response that Peter, I uh, think Peter is, uh, what he's saying there, uh, he's applying rules and thinks that he knows absolutely nothing about because the facts are that the guardians in Drogheda are the only people who can tell you, you know, how many armed uh, guardians are in the town right now? How many backups are there? 
whether they have these uh, stab vests, whether they have guns or don't have. I am happy that the Garda Chief Superintendent is doing a fantastic job and all of the Garda, and by the way, it's 30 new guards, Peter, since last year. 25 came with the new recruits, but five stayed from before Christmas. The increase in the Garda force in Drogheda is increasing okay. with 30%. I have to so leave it no there. No town in Ireland, uh, hold on a second. No, well, no town in Ireland has a bigger increase in Garda numbers and needs them. So it's wrong to say that the Gardaí aren't doing their job. It's wrong to criticise them as not being qualified. And you don't know, frankly, Peter, you don't know and I don't know uh, exactly the issues in relation to the equipment. But you're well placed in the committee now to ask the Garda Commissioner to come in to talk Right, OK. I have to leave there. I'm way over time. I'm sorry. I said from day one, the Garda are doing a fantastic job. I think everybody did. I didn't hear any criticism. I got full confidence in the Garda Commissioner. We have to leave it to the listeners to come to a conclusion when the Garda goes on to debate me, show that he has the pop equipment. I am out of time. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Independent TD, Peter Fitzpatrick and Fergus O'Dowd of Finnegale TD for Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, it was agreed over the weekend uh, that European Union countries will be able to export uh, cars much easier into Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay. But uh, the Mercosur trade deal with uh, the South American countries is a two-way street and will result in 99,000 tonnes of beef uh, being delivered into the European Union. Philip O'Neill, Irish Farmers Journal Market Specialist is on the line. Good morning to you, Phelim, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, There's been a a lot of concern. Uh, The uh, Commission has been accused of selling Irish farmers out and people uh, asking uh, the Taoiseach to intervene. Uh, What will this mean for Irish farmers? Uh, Good morning. Well, look, uh, for Irish beef farmers, basically, it's a blow that they're not in a position to withstand. Um, The difficulty is uh, the European Union sets the global standard, the the gold standard for beef production uh, with its rules and procedures. Irish farmers comply with that. They have to comply with it. Uh, But that has a cost. And the reality is that if you open up the market then uh, to other areas of the world doesn't carry the same regulatory burden as Ireland and the European Union does, well then that is uh, a totally unlevel playing field and therefore you know, Irish farmers simply won't be able to compete with that. It is as blunt and as simple as that. Uh, and how is it possible? Uh, I mean, obviously the tariffs will uh, be reduced to such a, an extent that the meat will be very cheap here. But having said that, how is it possible to export meat from Uruguay to Germany, let's say, uh, and it costs less than Irish beef? Well, I suppose for a start, if you look at the traceability process, and so, uh, you know, in Ireland, you have to have your animal registered within the first 28 days of its life. Otherwise, there's a penalty, a cost penalty to it. Uh, in South America, you have to have it registered uh, at least 90 days before it goes into the processing system. So, uh, you know, just one small example. Uh, they're a low-cost producing area of the world. They don't have the same demands on animal welfare. They don't have the same demands on environmental issues. They don't have the same demands in terms of use of fertilizers, etc. Plus, they're naturally a very productive growing area of the world. And therefore, you know, beef in Brazil today costs, leaving the farm gate at around the equivalent of 220 euro cent per, per kilo. In Ireland, it's about 370 cent per kilo. Uh, that is the reality of it. And the reason that they can do it so cheap is that they don't have to do it to the European Union standards. And is this a, a fait complete or can the Irish veto it? 
We don't think so. And, uh, and, and it doesn't look as if uh, and it, Ireland would be in a position to veto it as such, but there would be an alliance, we would hope, of European countries with fairly substantial interests, uh, beef industry interests, thinking of France, Belgium and Poland in particular, that perhaps we can work along with those. The other area that I would be very intrigued by was how will the European Parliament, with this increased uh, Green MEP membership from across Europe, how will they look at doing business with an area of the world? You know, the European Union's insisting on Irish farmers planting more trees. Mm. Uh, in South America, and particularly in Brazil, you know, in the month of May alone this year, an area the size of County Leitrim uh, was taken out of rainforest and savanna land production. Now, how can they reconcile bringing, uh, encouraging that process, if you like, there by creating a new big 99,000 tonne market for that product and at the same time talk about uh, climate change, talk about uh, planting more trees, etc., and less beef production in Europe? Because the deal has been struck by the European Commission. Does it need to be endorsed by the Parliament? It does need to be approved by the Parliament. Uh, you know, EU legislation mm. now, it is the three-way process. It has to be approved at political level by the Council of Ministers, the Commissioner, the nuts and bolts, the day-to-day, and Parliament have the final say. So they can decide to accept it or reject it or make major modifications to it. OK, and there will be time uh, because it'll be some time before this uh, has an impact on Irish people. Yeah, the, the, the approval process will take somewhere probably at least two years, maybe three, and then you go into, it'll be a phased introduction after that, over a period of five years. So it's not something that's going to affect the Irish beef price next week, next month, even next year. I think Brexit is the big threat that uh, hangs mm. over us in respect of that. OK, some consolation there. Phelan, thank you very much indeed for joining us this no morning. Phelan O'Neill, Irish Farmers Journal Market Specialist. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're waiting on a hospital appointment, you're not the only one. Uh, three quarters of a, a million people are waiting on a hospital appointment. 755,200 people on one waiting list or another. As you heard last week on LMFM's news, uh, there are 3,529 people waiting for orthopaedic procedures in Our Lady's Hospital. This is a, an issue that was raised raised in the doll by local TD Thomas Byrne of Fianna Fáil who joins us in studio now. Uh, there's uh, some very serious uh, procedures that people need carried out and these procedures will literally change their lives and improve their lives uh, but they're waiting an inordinate amount of time. Well if you're waiting for a public um, orthopaedic procedure in Navin you're going to be waiting about 27 months. That's obviously the main orthopaedic centre for the North East and beyond in fact and there's about 3,500 people waiting for initial assessment there. So the waiting lists are absolutely frightening. And while I suppose orthopaedic is considered elective, it's mm. considered, you know, if a choice and all that, but the truth is that the vast majority of those people who are waiting for appointments are not just in pain, but they're usually in severe pain uh, and they can't be seen. And uh, some in more pain than others. You're saying the average waiting time is over two years, close yeah. on two and a half years. Some cases are deemed urgent and they're waiting a long time too. Yeah, there's people who are deemed urgent and waiting about 17 months as well. Like, And it's again, that's just a medical decision. So, I mean, if you're urgent, you're going to be waiting a year and a half and that's that's really, really scary. And I think there's a number of uh, solutions to this. I mean, first of all, the A&E crisis does contribute to delays uh, in the general hospital system, maybe not specifically mm. orthopedic, but it does contribute to delays because uh, beds have been taken up, etc. And the whole issue of recruitment and the whole issue of staff relations as well with the doctors is a huge issue and has to be dealt with. Uh, that, in fact... Uh, speaking to some of the orthopaedic consultants myself, that is what they say is the biggest issue. Um, the other issue is that the National Treatment Purchase Fund, which Fianna Fáil uh, 
initiated before uh, when we were in government the last time and brought back in through the confidence of supply agreement. Um, that has come back in, but the problem, not the problem, it is being used and yeah. it is reducing waiting lists in some areas, but generally it's for maybe what, I don't know whether, I'm not a, a, med- a medic, but they're easier procedures, maybe cataracts and smaller procedures and, you know, they don't take up as much time. So so while the minister goes on the radio saying waiting lists are down, yeah. and it is true that they are slightly down for people who already have an appointment for, for an operation, it's mainly those type of operations. But the truth is that the waiting lists to actually get seen by the consultant mm. are hugely up. And the number of people uh, who are nationally who are in a waiting list more than uh, 12 months is almost the entire population of Mead. Uh, and the number of people who are in the popul- uh, uh, of, of the numbers that you call out mm. who are in a waiting time more than 18 months is almost, is in fact, is more than the population allowed. Um, so these are huge amounts of people that are waiting, generally speaking, in pain, generally speaking, need uh, these operations and by and large don't have private health insurance uh, mm. so they, they can't avail of that. I, I think a lot of the people who are on a waiting list for 12 months uh, as you said a, a moment ago are actually waiting probably 13 months because it can take 28 days before you're actually put on the put waiting list. There's yeah. a, a waiting list to get on the waiting yeah. list. Yeah. Uh, but uh, very important uh, treatment no doubt uh, but uh, in, uh, using the National Treatment Purchase Fund to uh, secure places in private institutions, are we not ending up paying more? Well, um, our priority at the moment is when you have waiting lists of the size of the waiting list that we have, the priority should be not the concerns of doctors, actually, not the ideological issue, mm. whether this is right wing or left wing, but actually, how do we get these people fixed? What how about the, the cost? The, the cost is one thing, and it's, mm. it's debatable whether the cost is higher or lower. I mean, it depends on the different procedures. Uh, but the bottom line is the National Treatment Purchase Fund is a fund there that was abolished by Fine Gael in 2011. Waiting lists went up after that was abolished massively. People were getting their operations. There was a guarantee uh, it varied between three and six months under the National Treatment Purchase Fund in terms of getting your procedure done. Uh, that's, that's out the mm. window now. It was abolished in 2011. Um, not for cost reasons, by the way. This, mm. this isn't one that was, that was got, got rid of because of the economy. It was got rid of actually to fund a separate uh, way of dealing with hospital appointments that Fine Gael brought in, which didn't work. Mm. Uh, and then we got it back in, through, in 2016 we think it needs to be expanded to get these people off the lists and get these operations mm. done and quite frankly I think that's all that people would uh, be concerned about at the moment while at the same time making sure that we are yeah. dealing with the recruitment crisis in hospitals mm. uh, and we are dealing with the issue of a Well that's the, the thing I, I suppose uh, and uh, I mean I'm not talking about ideologies but should we not be talking about expanding services rather than outsourcing them? Yeah we should be uh, absolutely but the, the key to expanding services is actually recruiting doctors and that's proving very difficult at the moment so while while work is ongoing on that and needs to happen as a matter of urgency, um, we need to make sure that operations are, are getting done. Um, and the recruitment crisis is huge. There's various reasons for us. There's the doctors complain about equal pay. There's the pay talks, uh, the, the negotiations that are ongoing at the moment in terms of the contract. Um, there's a lot of things going on at the moment, a lot of talk and a lot of people, you know, uh, announcing positions and all that. But the bottom line is we need to get these operations done. It is starting to work in terms of minor operations. People also have the option, well, of course, Brexit is, is, is oh. the big unknown here, of going to the north. Now, an awful lot of people of the age that will be going for orthopaedic surgeons, quite frankly, Michael, they're not used to Northern Ireland, a lot of them. They're certainly not used to getting medical procedures done in the north, mm. but some people have got it done uh, and it has worked for them under the cross-border treatment directive where if they're on a public list, they can get it done privately mm. in another EU country and in particular uh, the north, obviously, beside us. So that, that's there, while certainly, at le- and I, I think should continue after Brexit, but certainly uh, before Brexit. So that, that's another option for people as well uh, that has worked for others, but, mm. you know, I don't speak up for private hospitals in the north of Ireland, but it certainly mm. has worked for some okay, people. OK, but you'll pay your travel and so on, which is why the 
north is uh, the destination that people tend to choose. Oh, Rotterdam and Holland yeah. are, are, are main. Mm. Are, but that option will remain yeah. after Brexit regardless. Uh, oh, yeah. That. yeah. Uh, but uh, undoubtedly uh, an awful lot of people have had uh, their procedures cancelled or postponed uh, because of last week's strike. Uh, we're into uh, another week of industrial turmoil for the health services uh, and uh, it's the Labour Court that will try to resolve this. I'm sure there's a, a sigh of relief across the country that the three days of strike action this week have been cancelled. Of course there's a sigh of relief but I have to say Michael I was talking to some of the, the striking workers at a Lady of Lourdes Hospital in particular I have a relative in hospital at the minute and quite frankly the care that was been given by those by those staff in terms of the catering and, and other care staff while they were actually on strike was incredible. Uh, so they were doing their job in the wards and quite frankly, some of them are asking me why a lot of these appointments mm. were cancelled. Uh, and certainly there were questions to be asked about why so many uh, appointments were cancelled when, quite frankly, with some difficulty, services were, run, were running. And I can say this and speak from first-hand experience, services were running pretty well within the hospital itself. Um, so uh, I, I think certainly the HSE should be asked as to why so many procedures were cancelled. Because they left it too late to put a contingency well, yeah, in place. That, that seems to be the reason. Mm. It certainly wasn't mm. the strike because it, it, they were, you know, there was a lot of things mm. able to happen within that hospital. By I mean, no it was the same the week previous. Uh, they left it too late to put in a contingency. Then they put in a contingency, started cancelling appointments. The strike was called off. Uh, and then they tried to undo that very last minute and in haste. Yeah, it seemed to be extremely last minute. And mm. I would certainly question the need as to why those appointments were cancelled and whether it was whether it was actually mm. necessary or whether it was part of the, H- the HSE strategy. I think, unfortunately, now with, with uh, industrial relations in general, uh, and, and, and strikes in general, the government seems quite prepared to let people go out and strike mm. and then maybe sort it out afterwards. Because let's be honest, there's no government in this country going to do to the unions what Maggie Thatcher did to the miners. These situations always get resolved. People are never left out on strike. Um, so why do they always have to let these things go to the brink uh, is beyond me. Do you believe, though, that the government is in breach of the Lansdowne Road Agreement? Well, look, I mean, what's, what's happened here is that there was an agreement done in 2015 that there was, mm. this would be looked at now. Now, what was coming up in 2015? There was an election coming up. And the same with the school secretaries. We had the school secretaries in the Dáil last week. They had an agreement in 2015 mm. as well, which is now expiring this year and, and requires uh, a further agreement. In fact, the, the government has mandated to enter talks uh, to establish mm. a further agreement with them. And yet the government is, 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 seems to be reneging on that because they're not engaging in substantive talks. So, so there seems to be a few things that were happening in 2015. Mm. The government put does that mean that the government welched on its deal. Well, it seems like they did. Like, mm. obviously now so should there be a sanction? I mean, if you can penalise uh, workers uh, who, if uh, they take action outside of uh, the terms of the Lansdowne Road Agreement, should there not be a, a sanction for government? Well, I mean, I think clearly the, the government, the Labour Court now will adjudicate on this. And I think you know, hopefully will be accepted whatever they decide there will be a, a reasonable effort to resolve it I don't know what sanction you can put mm. on a government Michael I mean mm. let's be honest it's not, it's not something that I, w- I would see as realistic But if you were a trade unionist but, would you trust a government well, who, that welches on deals how could you enter into well, another I think, agreement with I them? think it is incumbent on every party to agreements and in fairness the unions have abided by the deals by and large um, and it is incumbent on the government then to, to stick by their commitments as well because it certainly doesn't help the mood music then uh, for further agreements and I think this is this is very sus that these deals were done in 2015 oh yeah we leave them for a few years forget about them and now uh, the time has come and they don't seem to be that keen to implement them Mm. so what does that mean Uh, is it a a trustworthy government well look we want to replace it um, as soon as possible so I'm not Mm. going to give you all the adjectives about it we want to be the alternative government of Fianna Fáil Uh, we've committed to seeing out 
Brexit, uh, if that happens this year, uh, and seeing through the budget. There should have been an election this year only well, for Brexit. There, and we certainly would be given that They're reporting this morning there'll be a, 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 an election in November if uh, Brexit uh, happens at Halloween. Uh, will Fianna Fáil pay the £16.2 million to the SIP2 members? Well, we will certainly abide by any decision of the Labour Court. I mean, that's going to happen this week, I would have thought. Uh, there'll be something there. So I think, I think, quite frankly, that would be solved before there's a general election. Uh, but certainly, I think that we would uh, be very keen to do what is required under under the Labour Court, under uh, the dispute me- uh, resolution mm. mechanisms of the state. That's, that's what any government should be doing. OK, and the meanwhile, you'll be polishing or dusting off your election posters? Well, I didn't see the reports in the paper this morning, but I suppose in, in this particular uh, profession, you're always expecting an election that can happen at any time, and that's just the reality of it. We've, we've committed, in terms of the best interest of the state, not to do it while Brexit was still uncertain. Uh, the Taoiseach is free under the Constitution to call an election any time he wants, okay. and we expect that. We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East, Thomas Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. We've had a very busy morning on the phone. Myself and Ross have been taking a lot of calls and comments. There's a lot of reaction to your opening piece for Fergus and Peter. Um, So I'll start off with Bernadette. She was in contact with us from East Mead and she says she's a grandmother who looks after her grandchildren during the summer holidays. Drogheda is usually the time that she would bring her, her grandchildren into for shopping or treats or like little trips out. You know the way oh. your granny brings you in your summer holidays. <laughs> and she's saying um, this year she won't be bringing them to Drogheda because she's af- afraid of what's happening on the streets and she would be afraid just to have public concerns mm. or have safe, safety concerns same as everybody else. So she says this year she's going to be bringing her business to Navin instead. Okay. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, obviously, it's something she's really worried about. I know mm. your reason. Anxious at the idea of uh, there being trouble when she's out and about shopping. Well, absolutely, yeah. mm-hmm. with our grandkids, you know. Mm. And um, Tom was in contact as well on the same issue. He was saying that listening to Fergus O'Dowd, he thinks it's kind of unfair of Fergus to suggest that anyone's been critical of the new recruits or suggesting that they weren't up to scratch. He said nobody is saying that. And he says he doesn't think that you are trying to suggest that either. Mm. That, you know, basically all you were saying is that we need experienced Gardy as well as new recruits. Um, he's saying, you know, it's the same principle of you know, if you were getting an operation, would you like to be operated on by someone who has just graduated or would you like to have somebody who has a bit more experience under their belt? So, you know, he just doesn't think that, he said nobody's criticising the recruits, they're doing a great job mm. but like that, people want to see extra experienced guards on the streets as well. Yeah, well I think Fergus O'Dowd knew very well that nobody was uh, criticising the guardie. And um, Ray was in contact today. It's great seeing Gardy walking on the street, or more Gardy on the streets. Um, but we shouldn't be so appreciative of the current um, Garda presence because what we have currently should be the norm. And there should be even more in a time of crisis like we have at the minute. Mm, OK, so still uh, something that uh, people are aware of. Uh, there was a, a lull there for a while. And as we said before, possibly a false sense of uh, security before the latest shooting. And on the same issue, we were contacted by the Drogheda City status group and um, have a, a comment from their secretary Anna McKenna she's just saying that statistics clearly show that Waterford despite having a popular simulation a popular no we go in mm-hmm. similar population that's to draw it. it that's it it's Monday morning Michael mm-hmm. you'll have to excuse me um 
basically it has nearly double the amount of garden numbers that we have here in Drogheda. In March 2019, Waterford and the surrounding area had 213 officers when Drogheda had just 129. So even the 25 extra recruits that we have still leave as well short of the required numbers. And she's saying that this confirms the extent to which Drogheda's Gardaí are under-resourced and the scale of the investment required to get the numbers we need to police our area properly. Um, she said Drogheda is on course to become Ireland's next city and continues to grow much faster than Waterford, yet it's been neglected by successive governments. OK, we'll uh, change the subject uh, for a moment and reflect on what was a, a terrible tragedy locally uh, and indeed how people who may decide to go swimming over the course of the summer months uh, should be cautious and take care. Uh, as you probably heard, uh, Jill Amante, a 14-year-old uh, from Aston Village in Drogheda, lost her life when she was out swimming at Sea Point on Friday evening. It was uh, a very terrible accident uh, when uh, herself and two friends were swept away in a riptide. Uh, they were hit pretty badly, according to reports, by a first wave uh, and were making their way back uh, to shore and uh, then Jill was hit by a second wave uh, and uh, drowned as a result. Uh, there's been a, a lot of grieving mourning and tribute uh, indeed over the last couple of days. Uh, she was a student at the Bally McKenney College in Drogheda. The principal there, Alan Mines, uh, described it as a terrible tragedy for the family, the school and the community, saying we are deeply saddened by this devastating news. Uh, Jill was a bright, funny and popular student. She made a tremendous contribution to Bally McKenney College life in her short time. Always a polite and outgoing student and will be missed by all staff and students. Let's uh, talk to John Leach, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Irish Water Safety Council. Good morning to you, John, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, And I'm sure uh, everybody uh, will uh, sympathise with friends, family, and indeed uh, the wider community as uh, they mourn the loss of young Jill Amante. Uh, But I think there's a lot of people locally who would be very surprised at what happened or how it happened, uh, because uh, I think a lot of people will know the area very well and think that Sea Point uh, seems a very unthreatening uh, stretch of water to enter into and uh, that they'd quite easily uh, go in for a swim and see point themselves or wouldn't object. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Back to somebody else doing so. Uh, what is, is a, a riptide uh, like that? Uh, or How would you describe h- how a riptide works and uh, how should we uh, be aware or uh, are there warnings uh, to tell us that, that the water is uh, dangerous in areas like that? Uh, good morning, Mike, and to all your listeners. And obviously, we, have, we extend our deepest and sincerest condolences to the family and friends and colleagues of this lovely girl. It's just an awful, awful tragedy. But yeah, back to the uh, the rip currents. So rip currents happen on most beaches, particularly where they surf. And so the, all the big surfing beaches would always have a very strong rip currents effect. And that's why, of course, we'd have lifeguarded beaches, uh, lifeguards on these sort of beaches to keep people out of the rip currents. But um, uh, there's rip currents on virtually all, all beaches, and of course not all lifeguarded. And so the, one, way, one of the ways of recognising rip current is when you're looking out at, at, the, uh, at the sea, from the beach side, you're looking out to sea. And where you, where you don't see much surf, that's where the rip currents are. Mm. That's where the water is running back out at right angles to the beach. And it, it's like a little stream, you know, a very narrow, stra- concentrated, strong stream that, that, that takes people out. Now, the surfers, for instance, they use them the whole time. They jump on their boards and they paddle out on those because they get out really, really fast beyond the surf and, it, and they surf back in again. But to the normal swimmer, uh, the, the, that's how you would recognize it. There'll be less surf. You're actually safer to swim with a small surf then there's less surf, because where less surf is means that the water's running back out and will carry you with it. So our, our advice always is, is to swim parallel to the shore. And by swimming parallel to the shore, even if you, get, if you do get into one, then at least you can swim your way out of it and you won't get swept away out to sea. You just you remain parallel to the shore at all times. It's a crucial, crucial piece of information and mm-hmm. advice that we can give to, you know, uh, swimming on our fantastic beaches, which mm-hmm. we have got many, and of course, which Sea Point is one. Mm. Um, and, uh, and would you advise against swimming if there isn't a lifeguard? Um, well, no, we, we encourage people to swim at lifeguard beaches, but we have to be realistic. There aren't enough lifeguard beaches to, to, you know, to cater for the tens of thousands of people who want to go swimming. And people like to go swimming on, on other beaches, so we're not going to, mm. as it were, you know, try and stop people or deter them or... Because that's not right. I mean, people have swum at rivers and lakes and beaches which are not lifeguarded for years and years and years and have done it very safely. But I think it's in this particular type of a, a situation where you have a rip current, then we need to be extra vigilant and try and identify the rip current. But we, in beaches where there are rip currents, we would not advise swimming on those beaches, to be honest with you, uh, because uh, if the rip currents, um, people get, get caught in them so easily. And uh, unless you've got a, a strong lifeguard there to rescue that person... Uh, you know, it can end in tragedy. So we would always encourage, I mean, the, the, the Louth County Council are very good. They employ mm-hmm. the lifeguards on uh, Templetown, Port and Claret beaches. And they're, they're great beaches for swimming on. They really, really are. Mm-hmm. And of course, our own volunteers in Louth will be running the Swim Weeks, uh, which are up on our website at watersafety.ie. And uh, you just go to Louth and, and uh, you can see when those classes are on. And we recommend that. Uh, you know, uh, children do these courses because they're, they're brilliant courses and they also make great friends for life. It's a great social, uh, um, you know, sort of fun for, for, for mm. children as well to learn to swim, learn things like that together. And of course, with, with wetsuits, like years ago, people would say, oh, the water's too cold, whatever. 
but now with these light, uh, very inexpensive wetsuits, I mean, people can stay in the water for much, much longer than they ever could before. So, uh, yeah, we, we'd really encourage that. But just back to the rip currents, swim parallel to the shore, can't say it enough. Mm. And be a little careful at this time of the year. If you haven't been swimming for a while, uh, it, just that cold shock is, is still the biggest contributing factor to all drownings in Ireland. As I, I said at the outset, uh, up to last Thursday at least, uh, John, I don't think anybody would have uh, thought of Sea Point as being a, a dangerous place to swim. Uh, but your advice would be don't to sw- swim at Sea Point because of uh, the riptide, is it? Well, I, I think that yeah, unless you've got a life, some trained life service mm. with you who are very, very competent in the water and can help somebody get out of trouble, then no, I wouldn't. Mm. I, I know it wouldn't. It wouldn't be for the novice swimmer. Okay, and generally speaking, really? to swim parallel to the shore. That, exactly, that's the crucial bit of information, that one. Okay, yeah. John, thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us you, uh, this morning. That's uh, John Leach, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Irish Water Safety Council. Now let's go back uh, to some more of the calls and comments that have been coming to us this morning, Maggie. Um, staying with the issue of the uh, feud in Drogheda, the gang crim- um, criminality, Mary agrees totally with Peter Fitzpatrick that the Gardaí in Drogheda need to be given whatever resources um, they need to be able to police the town properly. What's the point in having extra Gardaí if they're not fully equipped to do the job is what she's saying and um, Peter says you could have um, all the Gardaí in the country patrolling the streets of Drawd on a 24 hour basis and these gangs will still carry on with what they're doing regardless of absolutely no respect or regard for law and order and simply having more guards on the street won't stop them and mm. um, Mary wants to know what about the innocent victims in this whole mess who've had their homes attacked or petrol bombed and burnt out they're without a home and face years of having their insurance insurance premiums being through the roof that's if they ever get insurance again who's going to help these victims okay and um, staying with the feud as well, Martin says that everybody welcomes extra Gardaí in the streets, so it's unfair of Fergus to suggest otherwise. We all welcome their presence here and the work they're doing, but the question has to be asked if their being here is, is enough to, to properly quash the, the crime in the town, mm. because as yet we're to see, we're to see any real impact of, of them being here, basically. He said uh, the petrol bombs are still being thrown and the beatings and shooting are still, shootings are still happening, so we need to up the security presence even more. Well, I suppose and, that's it. People know what's happening on the ground. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is it. Um, mm-hmm. Anne wants mm-hmm. to know why government won't consider sending in the army to patrol the streets um, for a few months to help keep uh, all the crime at bay. Mm. Yes, it's great to have extra Gardaí, but the feud is still happening. and People are still fearful of their lives and fearful to go out and about in the town. Having the army on the streets would be another deterrent as far as okay. she's concerned. Okay. And then just I'll finish up actually with uh, a comment about uh, an item that we have coming up next actually on the whole issue of drink pricing. Um, Mick was in contact to say, he heard we're going to be talking about this later on the show. He mm. says, it's no wonder we're the dearest um, country in the EU with regard to the price of alcohol here because other countries in, in other countries in the EU, they wouldn't get away with charging that much for alcohol as people simply wouldn't buy it. In Ireland, there's such a dependence on drink that they can charge whatever they want and they'll still be able to sell it here regardless. Okay. Uh, just uh, before uh, you leave us for the moment, Maggie, uh, let's uh, remember Willie Fraser. You uh, remember Willie Fraser better than most. You'd have spoken to him many times over the years. Years, Willie Fraser of uh, the Love Ulster campaign who organised uh, that uh, parade in Dublin uh, to uh, much controversy uh, back in uh, the late 90s. Uh, Willie Fraser passed away over the weekend. Oh, uh, yeah. 58 years of age. Uh, he was uh, the founder of uh, the Families Acting for Innocent Relatives group or FAIR that organised that Love Ulster parade in Dublin uh, and uh, was somebody who had his own thoughts on Republicanism and indeed uh, somebody who had his own thoughts on Republicans. What do you expect from a pig but a grunt? 
you know, th- these people are Republican and uh, in nature and violent in nature. I'll take no lectures from the like of him about the rights and wrongs of what we do. And as, as far as being provocative, uh, we have asked the Irish government, who have said, I mean, people need to understand this, they have said they want to be involved in the affairs of Northern Ireland, and they have taken up cases in relation to justice for people. That's all well and good. No problem with that. But what about the border community? And your man started to talk about all these different atrocities. I can tell you now, South Armagh, no other area of the country suffered the way South Armagh did at the hands of Republicans. And we know the guards have the intelligence, they have the evidence to bring these people to account. We didn't call them this whole uproar about OTR letters. Do you know what we used to be told? They're OTV. And that means over the border. Um, like I said, Barry McGuigan put it as well as you could put it. And Barry McGuigan, I don't think, can be claimed to be a sectarian or a bigot for any cause. Okay. He said they went across the border, murdered, and then come back and hid in Flonus. Okay. And their case was done dark. There you go. That's uh, the late Willie Fraser, very young man. Uh, well, Maggie. That's a very young man, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's very sad for family. 58 uh, years of age, uh, lost his uh, battle to cancer on Friday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the clock is uh, ticking down to uh, the summer recess uh, for the Doll and uh, the Shannon, which will break for the summer months. But over the next couple of weeks, uh, some loose ends will be tied up. And uh, the Sunday Independent reported uh, this week uh, that the government is set to fast-track new laws to clamp down on cheap alcohol sales and off-licenses and supermarkets with the Cabinet expected to approve plans to introduce minimum unit pricing rules over the course of the next two weeks and to make this law within 12 months. Let's talk about this with Eunan McKinney, who is uh, the Head of Communications and Advocacy for Alcohol Action Ireland. A very good morning to you, Eunan, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I think some people will be surprised to think that the government would do this uh, before they move to do it in Northern Ireland. Well, that may be so, yes. I think there might be some raised eyebrows in the context of that, but I think there'll probably be more people more surprised that this hasn't already happened, and more to the point that it is, we're still debating whether this should or this shouldn't happen. Um, the idea that it's been fast-tracked is somewhat interesting by virtue of the fact that the bill that was involved in relation to making this a matter of law was passed last October. So it's actually nine months since this has been passed. And as you know from conversations we've had in the past, you know, we've been debating this for five or six years. Um, so we would be of the view that uh, it, it actually should have been brought in before now and in the context of other second circumstances that are around us. There'll, nev- there'll never be an appropriate time economically perhaps to influence whether things will be sold or not. But the point of the measure to be introduced is the matter. it's a matter of public health and it's about trying to, as we've said before, try to ensure that we bring about a small level of reduction mm. in some of the levels of high, high levels of consumption of alcohol, especially those within the context of binge drinking. Okay, well, I, I think there is uh, concern and probably uh, legitimate concern in that off-licences, for example, in particular along uh, the border areas, are concerned about people going across the border to buy this alcohol, which will be available there at the cheap levels people are used to buying it at now south of the border. But it's not just the off-licences uh, or the traders along the border, it's all traders, uh, because people might go uh, north of the border to buy cheap alcohol and then get their 
bread and beans while they're at it. Yeah, that, I mean that has always been the case. I mean, obviously we live in we live in an island where there are two jurisdictions where there's a level, high levels of frequencies in terms of the fluctuations within currencies and price changes can occur, and that has been the case for many, many years. Certainly, for as long as I've been on this earth. Um, in that context. So I think there's nothing new in the context that we occasionally uh, benefit and occasionally don't benefit from the variables within the economic structures that govern the island. But in the context of this, again, I mean, I'm not dismissing the concerns of people. Of course, there are legitimate concerns about people who might be fearful of losing some degree of uh, business. But this measure isn't about business. This measure is about public health. It's about trying to ensure that we bring about a level of reduction in mm. the consumption of alcohol. And the best, one of the best ways to do that, and it's not the only way, but it's one of the best ways to do that, is to influence the price. And if we can influence the price, just as we did with cigarettes and tobacco, we can bring about a reduction that is necessary to try and curb some of the worst effects of alcohol-related harms. Have we not already done that? Uh, we heard last... No, we haven't, no. I mean, we haven't really addressed the issue of price at all. I mean, as you know, mm. you can walk into any um, even convenience store now uh, or supermarket or, or any of these smaller retailers and you can buy a bottle of vodka for, you know, anywhere between 12, 13, 14, 15 mm. euros. And these are, you know, these, these are the significant factors that are involved in the levels of high levels of consumption of alcohol. But we're, the we're serious expensive. about actually trying to address the consumption, the high levels of mm. consumption. And remember, we are outliers in relation to how high our levels of consumption are. We need to, uh, we need to be, get serious about this. And price is one of the significant factors. Now, there are other factors. Mm. And there are, they're contained within the Public Health Act. Okay, but uh, if price is such a, a significant factor, why is it that we are uh, one of the outliers in terms of consumption, as you put it? Because we're the most expensive country in Europe for alcohol. The Eurostat Consumer Price Index published last week says beer, wine and spirits are 77% more expensive here than the EU average cost. That's because they are, those costs are largely reflective of on-trade prices rather than off-trade prices. And in the context of on-trade prices, as you know, if you go into a bar, you go into a hotel, or you go into a restaurant, and you purchase alcohol, you're purchasing alcohol at a premium because you're purchasing it in the context of a whole set of other variable costs that are involved, whether it be staff, whether it be premises, Mm. whether it be marketing, all those other factors are involved. The reality is that over 65% of all alcohol that's consumed in Ireland is actually purchased in the off-trade, and most of that is purchased within the context of alcohol purchases in supermarkets. And we know that that alcohol is exceptionally cheap. We do, you know, we've spoken in the past about our annual survey where we do an annual market review and a price survey of alcohol available in the market, and we know it is exceptionally cheap for people to buy alcohol. And we, you know, the, if you look back even further into the context of what do we spend as a society mm. on alcohol, we actually spend a little less of our national income, about 3.3%, than what there would in Europe. And that's because the affordability of alcohol in Ireland is so high. It is very available and very affordable. Right. Uh, you said you could buy a bottle of vodka for about €13 Euro in some places. Mm. Uh, under the new laws when they come into effect, instead of paying €13, you'll be paying about €21. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And the same. So the the, the new system will be based on the level of alcohol 
that's contained in the product. And the endeavour is to ensure that the cheapest, strongest alcohol on the market would be at a price which is reflective of the harm that's mm. involved. So, I mean, in the context, most people, if most average consumers of alcohol, if they go to buy any alcohol product, largely speaking, they tend to buy a premium product, they tend to buy a branded product, and, you know, we'll take it in any, I mean, there's multiple brands of vodka out there. Well, They're normally, you know, in the mid-20s. If they can afford 20s. it, yeah. I mean, well, there, a, well, a lot of people will buy what they can product. afford. It's uh, the cheap, it's the cheap product. It's hmm. the one that's been sold at the bottom shelf. But that's all that some people can afford, and, and for a product that is selling for 13 euro to increase by 8 euro in price, yes. it's unheard of. Well, it's reflective of what is the context of the harm that's involved. So we're selling this, this harmful product at too low a cost. And the idea about it of bringing up the price to be reflective of the other products in that category is to ensure that people will drink a little less. A little less. Or go, so or go to Newry. No, I mean the fact. The fact in relation to the, the, the who's purchasing that alcohol. Okay, but if you, if, if youngster, you, youngsters are people who are heavily dependent, and what what the endeavour is to try and curb the level of consumption within those two cohorts, so that that level of binge drinking, as we've mm. had spoken about so often, do you, do, do you know the harm that? that's caused by that will be reduced. Do you know that? I mean, is that statistically proven that the people who buy the thirteen euro bottle of vodka are, 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 are youngsters or uh, yeah, alcoholics? That's, who's, that's who's, well, the people who are dependent on alcohol. Yeah, that's who's buying those products. Uh, the people who are buying a bottle of vodka, you and I, how do you know? I mean, a bottle of vodka. You could, the average consumer is buying those branded products that we are so familiar with in our in our daily lives. They're buying those products you, in the high twenties. You're assuming that? No, no, it's a fact. I mean, you can see it in the context of sales and figures in relation to the products. That's why they're they're available. Well, I, I I I don't know that, uh, and I imagine there's a, a lot of people. Uh, well, if that were the case, then the likes of I mean, uh, just to give a couple of products, you know, Hazar mm. vodka, Smyrna vodka, Absolute vodka. Mm. Well, they they wouldn't be in the marketplace, but the reality is that they are, mm. and they're all much higher than twenty two. No, I know, but I mean, you could say the same about bread. Them. I mean, there's some very cheap you bread, and, and there's some very expensive bread, and some people buy the cheap bread because they like it. Some people buy the cheap bread because it's cheap and it's all they can afford, and they may not the like majority it. Majority of people who buy alcohol buy alcohol at a premium product. That's what they buy. Right. It's the same for everything in relation to most of most of the alcohol products that are available in the marketplace. Well, that's it is only it is only those who are dependent on a, a level of alcohol consumption or dependent on a budget that they're buying those cheaper, strong products. Well, and it's the same with some of the beer products. It's the same with some of the cider products. I don't know. With, vod- with, with vodka, for example, some people will tell you it makes no difference uh, because they mix it. Uh, they put in so much lemonade or whatever they mix it with that you know they might as well buy the one for thirteen euro than the one for twenty two euro. Well, the modelling that has been done on this in relation to other jurisdictions where this has been brought in mm. demonstrates that that is who you're aiming to try and curb. Mm. And that's a, that's a useful endeavour because it is it is the youngest cohort who are heavily dependent on binge drinking and it is the older cohort who are alcohol dependent who are consuming these products. And there is a significant level of reduction that can be brought about in relation to the price of the product because there is a limited amount of income available 
to the individuals who are purchasing it. Maybe so. I'm just, I, I just don't know. And I would assume that some people at least would buy it because it's only €13 Euro and uh, will say to themselves, look, let's try and get it for €13 Euro if we're going to have to pay €21 Euro for it. And uh, I can get it two miles up the road for €13 Euro rather than paying €21 Euro on my doorstep. Uh, so while I, I, I'm up there, I'll go up and I'll do some grocery shopping. I might pop into an electric shop and buy a television. Well, that may be so. That, that, but that, the, the, those variables that exist in the in the current environment have always existed. There's nothing particularly new in that. There, mm. there is all sorts of variables involved in that, whether it be excise duty, whether it be tax duties, whether it be currencies and the fluctuation in currencies. That has been that's been with us since well, since we've we've had two currencies with the involvement of the euro. Um, so these are factors that are consistent in mm. in any retailing experience, but. Again, we're not in the we're not in the argument. I'm not trying to argue in favour of one or the other in relation to a retailing experience mm-hmm. or this footfall in relation to where people purchase their um, household goods. What what this is about is about trying to improve public health, and in that context, this is one of the best measures that is available to us within the context of the law that was passed after five or six years of debate and that there are other elements of that law Mm. that should be implemented as well so that all of these factors can work coherently to bring about a reduction in alcohol consumption. Okay, uh, as you said earlier on, uh, it's uh, very expensive uh, to go into a pub or a restaurant and buy alcohol in this country compared to other countries and there's a a lot of young people you were concerned last week about uh, a lot of uh, the Leaving Cert students who'd have finished their exams uh, and going abroad uh, and how they might be drinking when they're there where they'll find that the cost of drinking out is very, very cheap in comparison. Yeah, again, I think what, what that, we put out a statement last week in relation to this, and we've done some work with our colleagues, uh, in particular in relation to the Balearic Islands in terms of Majorca and Menorca, these, these particular destinations where exam students are um, going on what are called, you know, exam holidays or leave and start holidays. And, you know, last year we saw there was a, quite a significant spike in relation to, sadly, Irish students get involved in incidents of both, you know, personal harm, but also issues of violence and street street disruption, such matters. And sadly, mm. even two two particular in two two instances, some people didn't actually come home at all. And so, what we were trying to highlight was that, you know, we're not trying to, you know, be killjoys. Of course, go and enjoy your holidays and go and, you know, have your have your opportunity in the sun. But just be mindful that, you know, you need to be. cognizant of your own health you need to be mindful that you maybe have had a very stressful couple of weeks before you left that you're maybe perhaps overly tired perhaps Mm. not necessarily as well hydrated as you should be and maybe you know you just need to be mindful that you don't fall into harm uh, early in your holiday in relation to an an excessive level of consumption of alcohol. Mm. Uh, Because it'll be what at least half price uh, uh, or a third of the price maybe? Well, again, it depends what you would what you would consider. Like in the context of the purchase of it in on the in, in the non trade setting, like if they're going to a pub in relation to Spain or some mm. of the uh, some of these places, yes, the, the price of alcohol is cheaper in in some of these countries, mm. um, and even in the off trade, where a lot of this alcohol would probably be purchased as well, brought mm. back to apartments and that they'll find that it's probably comparable in relation to what is available in the market here. Mm. Or very, very cheap. 
Yeah, but it is very, 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 very affordable. As I, you know, as I say, we've highlighted this before, and we'll probably do so again this year, later in the summer. We'll highlight it probably again. We'll do our survey and we'll see what the data brings out. But it, generally speaking, mm. has indicated over the last number of years the exceptional affordability mm. uh, of alcohol in this country in the off trade, where people, mm. you know, a man can essentially consume his low risk guideline weekly guideline for less than. Nine euro, and a mm. woman can do so for around five fifty. And like these are these are exceptionally low mm. prices in relation to the level of alcohol. But uh, I think uh, when people are in Spain or Portugal, they'll find one of these premium brands uh, that you were talking uh, about uh, that cost about twenty two euro, uh, whether it's vodka or wherever else, uh, mm. for about the thirteen euro that the cheap brands sell for here. Will they not? I wouldn't think so, because again, what you'll find is that any of these well-known products that people buy on a regular basis, brands that we're all familiar with, they have a premium attached to them by virtue of the fact that they spend so much money in relation to their products mm. in marketing them. And the price reflects that level of marketing that's included in the, in the, in the brand development. Mm. So people are attracted to these products naturally because they're heavily promoted and they're heavily marketed, but the price reflects that. It reflects the level of, okay. of expenditures that's put into it. All right, well, uh, it'll be more expensive, it would seem, uh, for these I mean, uh, cheaper products product in the next you know, year or so. It's very cheap to make. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. a very cheap product to make. What costs the money is the branding and the, and, the, and the marketing of it, and that's why these products are expensive in many cases. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Eunan McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy for Alcohol Action Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the next European Parliament will sit uh, for the first time tomorrow and we'll go to Brussels now where Claire Daly is uh, set uh, to take her seat for the first time tomorrow, incoming MEP, independent MEP at that. And a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us uh, from Brussels. Uh, You'll be making your way through the corridors of power over the next couple of days and my God, there's a lot of corridors. It's a big place. And, uh, certainly a lot of corridors that seem to go around and say that from everything we've seen so far, the most convoluted sort of uh, crazy setup I, I have ever seen. So, uh, yeah, a huge amount of bureaucracy to take in. Mm. Uh, very big institutions. They love a lot of paperwork, getting everybody registered. And then, of course, not to mind all that in Brussels with the big move that happens every month down to Strasbourg later on today, where literally everybody uproots and goes to France for a couple of days at enormous expense and mm. environmental damage, obviously, adding to the carbon footprint. So mm. I understand yeah. they, they, they have special containers that come along and take out your office and then set it up, your office, uh, like with the filing cabinets and all of that, uh, and all uh, of your records and computers. I don't think computers. that's ours no? now. No? I think we get, or what I believe, and we haven't gotten on yeah. Yes, we're getting temporary offices. Believe it or not, they've reconfigured all of the office space in the whole of the Parliament for over 750 MEPs. The work that they're doing in the summer, giving people extra offices, subdividing, they're doing Mm. that in Brussels and in Strasbourg. And they've the whole project on target in the summer, moving people around, temporary offices and everything. So we haven't got one yet. We're due to get an office in Strasbourg starting tomorrow. Mm. uh, And then we'll get one in Brussels next week on a temporary basis and then a proper one. But I, I believe they uproot a lot of the Parliament stuff, but I think the MEPs are responsible for moving their own stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's special trains, there's charter Mm. flights, there's ridiculous expense just to keep, I suppose, the agreement together that there has to be, the Parliament has to be in Strasbourg. But in this day and age, I think that's completely 
unsustainable and we need to be calling that out a lot more you know mm. and before you take your the environmental damage before you assume your seat uh, tomorrow, maybe uh, you'd uh, tell us where you see yourself going over the next five years. Uh, one of the oldest questions, I suppose, ever, but seems uh, more pertinent uh, this morning yeah, uh, than usually. Yeah, it's a really hard one to answer because uh, we haven't even got our heads around how this place works yet yeah. or doesn't work. Well, I suppose, first of all, myself and Mick Wallace have joined the GUI NGL group. That's the United Left Nordic Green Alliance. So uh, we will be in that. There's other Irish delegations in that Sinn Féin and Luke Mink Flanagan is also in it. Um, Some good people from across Europe in that. We'll be sitting on the, I'll be on the Libe Committee, which is the Justice Committee. Uh, It's it's the nearest equivalent to the Justice Committee in Ireland, which I was on. And I'll be on the Transport Committee, which is important, obviously, for railways and particularly for, I suppose, our neck of the woods, uh, aviation and that as well. So Mm. Uh, I'll be on those ones and following the legislation on that. But I think our biggest challenge will be as to how we make the the Parliament relevant and get the information back. And I suppose the most shocking example of that is the the Mercosur deal, which was signed by the European Commission at the end of their constitutional term, effectively denying the new European Parliament a say in the process. Uh, That trade deal with South America is going to have major implications. And straight away, we need to... I suppose, work with citizens in Ireland and across Europe, the farmer community are okay. awake to us already, but they need to be because this is a serious mm. threat. Like, do, do, Does so it I not need the ratification of the Parliament? Uh, can it not be blocked by the European Parliament? Not really. It can be blocked by member states. Oh, it can be stopped, but I would see it being stopped in the way in which um, I suppose TTIP was stopped by the citizens of Europe waking up to it and putting their national representatives under pressure on it. Like, you know, as it stands at the moment with the balance of, of numbers, it, uh, it would continue its next phases. But member states and that can block it, and, and they, they will if they're put under enough pressure. I mean, I think already there's huge movements in, in the likes of Brazil and that, where Bolsonaro has said he's going to clear the lands of the indigenous people to have industrial scale um, agricultural production, beef production, and and to mm. you know bring those to the markets of Europe on the basis when they use pesticides regularly, which are banned across the EU. So from a public health and a climate change factor, it's outrageous. And when you think that the peoples of Europe put climate change high on the agenda, not just in Ireland but across Europe, with the returning and record numbers of green uh, MEPs, their own study said that this deal is bad for the environment and yet they signed the back of that before the new European Parliament has a chance to discuss it. Mm. really. And I suppose that gives you an indication of the democratic deficit that's there. I suppose the other side of it is is this sort of charade that we'll go through tomorrow, but we probably won't now because they haven't got a name for the new uh, European uh, Commission president. They say, they say they will by tomorrow. Can the Parliament say that if uh, there isn't a, a commissioner selected by... Yeah, and well, I mean, we're sitting tomorrow and it's not the vote thing which has been already put off till Wednesday if they mm. get someone. So I suppose it'll be a bit of a welcome thing, like the outgoing crowd are in place until the 31st of October anyway. Mm. But it isn't a convoluted system that you say the European Council nominates someone as head of the European Commission. That's then put to the European Parliament. Now, they say we approve it, but yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you can have our candidates and if you don't like them, 
uh, we'll come back and we have another one. Do you know what I mean? Mm. We don't actually really get to select one. It's a, it's a bit of a lip service, really, like, you know. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's the reality of such a, a big institution. You go from being a, 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 one, a one voice out of 158 to one voice out of 750 or something like that. It's a, it's a, a, a very small space that you take up and uh, take it. That's well, why the membership of the United Left is, is important. It's the groups that matter. Yeah, it's, mm. it's the groups that matter and we can take up campaigns across Europe. Uh, interestingly, like the TTIP agreement, the Americans mm. blamed that the German group inside the GUI uh, group in the mm. European Parliament were given the credit, I would say, for scuppering the TTIP deal by using the information they got here uh, to make the ideas, I suppose, public knowledge and to develop a campaigning wing outside. And that's the type of work we're going to have to do. It's going to be difficult. It's mm. not straightforward. And we are going to have to find our feet. It is really a minefield, 100%. So I'd absolutely love to stay in touch as we find our feet and begin to sort of mm-hmm. uh, familiarise ourselves with the issues and make them more relevant to Irish people because unfortunately up to now we've been getting them too late, you know. OK, well, you'll be asked to approve whoever they put forward as uh, the next commissioner. You'll also be asked to vote on uh, the next uh, president of the European Parliament. Uh, if Mairead McGuinness is nominated, uh, will she get your vote? She won't. <laughs> No more, and that's nothing personal or anything like that. But no more than I'd vote for a Fine Gael or at home. I certainly won't be voting for them uh, in Europe. Uh, GUI has put up our, our own representative, a Spanish woman from United Left, so uh, we'll be voting for her. But I mean, obviously, personally, I would wish, um, you know, Mairead McGuinness well, but no, she, I, I couldn't vote for her. Okay, Uh, and then uh, we'll have a a new uh, president of uh, the European Central Bank, uh, which could prove to be the most important of all of these uh, positions uh, for our listeners, uh, especially uh, anybody who's repaying a monthly mortgage. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, um, all of these posts are are hugely, um, I suppose they have a very serious impact on the lives of Irish citizens in so many ways. And we don't often join the dots on that so it, it is going to be important and we need to scrutinise all of that very carefully Okay, uh, just uh, before you leave us uh, today uh, and take up this new role, what about your old role? Uh, your seat is now vacant, uh, will you come home at the time of a, a by-election and involve yourself in a campaign and if so for whom? Well I, I mean I think there's still a very good chance that there'll be a gen- general election before there'll be a by-election but yeah there's a number of people interested, we won't reveal anything as of yet but I mean I'd obviously um, like to see some like-minded person standing uh, for that position for sure. I wouldn't like to to lose it if you like to the big parties, but uh, mm. at the same time I have a responsibility here, so I suppose it depends when the election is, how much involved I can be, but I would be hoping to strongly endorse uh, an alternative candidate whenever you, it is. You won't tell us if that's Brendan Ogle? Oh, it won't be Brendan Ogle. At first. Okay. I know he's no interest in that. And okay. I've, had no, I've had no discussions with him uh, about enough. it, and uh, I don't think he's any interest in that. But there are a number of people who are interested, you know. So, okay. uh, yeah. Uh, All right. Watch that space, I <laughs> OK, we will indeed. And uh, thanks for uh, talking to us. Uh, we'll uh, much, hope to speak to you over the course of the next five years. Uh, and uh, thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, from those big corridors of power in Brussels uh, this morning. Incoming MEP, independent MEP, Claire Daly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk once again about uh, the tragic death of a uh, local young girl, 14-year-old Jill Nante, who died after 
uh, terrible tragedy out swimming at Sea Point on Friday evening. We're joined uh, by Kenneth Flood, uh, who you'll know is a former councillor. He's also a member of uh, the Aston Village Residents Association. Good morning to you, Kenneth, and thanks uh, for joining us. I know that there's uh, some fundraising, people trying to do whatever they can uh, 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 to help uh, the family, uh, but uh, very hard to take in what happened, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um whole community is in shock. Um, on Friday when the news broke um, and people found out that it was a 14-year-old girl from, from Aston Village, you know, uh, people soon realised that everybody pretty much knew her um, from that ugly, smiley girl who would stop as she was passing to pet someone's dog, talk to younger children, or always comment on how lovely someone's flowers were. So everybody knew who she was. Mm. You must have got a fright yourself because you have a daughter yourself around the same age. I do. I have a 13-year-old daughter and it was my 13-year-old daughter who rang me um, on Friday evening when I was coming home from work saying that a girl she knows from the estate and from school who she would walk home with from school sometimes has drowned and can she go around to the house? I said, no, no, don't don't go around to the house now. Her, her parents have a lot to deal with. Um, but I asked them, did she know the girls who were with her and so on on the beach? She said, yeah. Um, it was just a day out and it turned into tragedy for for the family. So on Saturday, some of the immediate neighbours in Cormann Street called me. We came around to discuss what we could do to help the family. So I spoke to, to Jill's dad, um, Alex, and um, he said he had two siblings of Jill's to bring from Ghana for the funeral. And the, the funeral cost, so he didn't know when the funeral was going to be. So the local community there and then decided to do what we could to help. So the Red Association that evening set up, on Saturday evening, set up the GoFundMe page and have shared it all over loud and all over the uh, the pages that we can. When LFM especially shared it, there's been a huge response from all around Rohada and it's up to over €7,000 in just a day and a half already. We're very close to hitting the, the €10,000 target. So we're hoping that the LMFM listeners will be as generous as the LMFM online followers and make some small donations, big or small, it doesn't matter, to help the family reach the target. Mm. I'm sure people are asking the same questions over and over in their minds and how it happened. It happened very quickly, it would seem. And speaking to uh, John Leach of the Irish Water Safety Council a little bit earlier on, it's not an accident that many of us would have predicted, I don't think. No, a, a riptide. It's something you read about and, mm. and something you see online. It's not something you expect in a beach in Loud, and it's not something that you expect to take a young, healthy, happy 14-year-old girl um, out like that. Um, when her friends were just a few feet in front of her, did their best to, to try and save her, according to the reports. Um, but it took her away from them. Um, the Coast Guard... And um, we're on the scene very, very quickly. But in those circumstances, there's very little that anybody can do. And that's what makes it all the more shocking and, and tragic for everyone that it was such a split-second freak occurrence that has cost the life of this 14-year-old girl. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we talk about young people and how they behave. This was a 14-year-old doing what you hope would hope every 14-year-old would be doing during their summer holidays, out enjoying the fresh air and having some fun on the beach. Absolutely. Um, fourth proper sunny week uh, of this year. Um, primary schools broke up, secondary schools finished their exams and, and everybody looking forward mm. to summer. Um, just good, clean, youthful fun 
um, and unfortunately in this case it turned in, into tragedy um, and I know the warnings have been put out from uh, Water Safety Ireland and I hope people will be a bit more uh, cognizant of, of the dangers that are there um, of the sea and of the waterways in the country um, in the summer. Yeah, uh, I'm sure she'll be remembered uh, by everyone for a, a very long time to come but in the immediate aftermath of uh, this tragedy uh, it must be very hard to come to terms with it in particular for the young people in particular for the young girls in the estate. Absolutely. Um, on Saturday when the news kind of uh, it broke a little bit more and everybody knew who it was there was groups of young girls um, that knew her from the estate from the primary school and from her secondary school in groups huddled together hugging and crying and uh, and, and talking about her um, my own daughter looking at videos on her phone of them walking home from school together um, she didn't even know her that well but they used to walk home from school together laughing, joking and playing about. She was a, a lovely, bubbly personality and all the, the young people knew her, even my younger son, who who wouldn't know her, said, oh, that's the girl who would always fist bump me when she came past, mm. uh, paint past the girl when, when I was out playing. But yeah, that, that's that girl. You know, so all the, all the children are in shock. The adults are in shock and, you know, as a father myself, I just, well, I wouldn't want to contemplate um, how I would feel in, in these circumstances. Okay, well, as you say, uh, people are rallying around trying to do whatever they can. Uh, There's very little you can do in a a case like this uh, when you've such a a tragic loss of a a young life. Uh, People may wish uh, to donate to help the family through this hard time, and they can do that, as you say, through the GoFundMe page. Uh, If uh, people don't have access to that, is there some other way that they can donate money? Yeah, there's a, a collection box in the village store, and that's the village, if anybody would like to leave, um, a cash donation there um, and on the other side of that anybody can contact me well, a lot of people may still have my number from my time as a counsellor they can contact me and I can make arrangements to collect it too OK and we can put them in touch with you as well Kenneth thank you indeed uh, for joining much, us uh, this morning that's uh, former councillor Kenneth Flood who's uh, a member of uh, the Aston Village Residents uh, Association and if you would like to make contact with Kenneth as I, I say you can make contact with us and uh, we'll pass on uh, the contact details now, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news uh, this morning, uh, Senator Ray Butler has paid back the money he owes. He owed €30,000 to the Oireachtas uh, and has owed it uh, for some time and had to be reminded on a number of occasions that he owed the money. And uh, we would have asked uh, Senator Butler to talk to us on the programme, except Senator Butler doesn't talk to us. Uh, he hasn't spoken to us uh, since we were asking about some other money uh, that uh, he had uh, taken charge of at one time. Uh, but uh, the report in the Irish... It's reported on uh, by Dara McDonough in a couple of papers uh, today. The report in the Irish Independent uh, says that a Fine Gael Senator, Ray Butler, who received a 30,000 golden handshake when he lost his doll seat on condition that he would not become a member of the Senate, has finally repaid the money three years after it fell due. Internal records show that the Houses of the Oireachtas had to write to Senator Ray Butler four times in an effort to recoup the final instalment and ultimately resorted to deducting it from his salary. Mr Butler accepted a total of €30,904 in termination payments from the Houses of the Oireachtas Commission when he lost his seat as a TD for Meath West in the last general election. These payments are made on the basis uh, that the recipient is no longer a member of the Oireachtas, but Mr Butler signed a, a declaration indicating that he would not subsequently consent to being nominated to the Shannon. 
However, he accepted the nomination of the Taoiseach and he was appointed in May 2016, three months after losing his tall seat and taking a seat in the Senate. The termination payments immediately had to be repaid. But records show that the authorities wrote to Senator Ray Butler seven times seeking him to recoup the money without success. He replied that he wasn't in a position to pay it uh, and uh, suggested paying monthly instalments of €1,000. He'd uh, paid... Uh, around 30,000 had left a balance of 374 euro, which uh, they had to take from him in deductions. Interesting story, all the same. Thanks uh, to uh, Dara McDonough for reporting on that. That's where we have to leave you for today. With thanks to Maggie McGuire and Ross Leahy for researching Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. <laughs> The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.